Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34. Do not be anxious. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. I'm Drew Wilkins. I'm one of the pastors here on staff at EP, and it's a privilege to be bringing God's word to us this morning. Um, I'll also note, this feels like an extra weighty one to me because this is one of those passages where probably most of us have some of these words on one portion of our house hanging on the walls or another. And it's one that has meant a lot to just about all of us over the years. There's been aspects of this that have been preached beautifully and wonderfully, and there's been aspects of this which have been used rather unkindly and perhaps even cruelly in people's lives. And so it's one of these handle with care passages. Um, We've been working through the series of the Sermon on the Mount, um, our series called The Heart of the Matter, where we consider how Jesus speaks to what is most important of what's going on. And today, we're gonna do the same thing here, but in this passage, Jesus kind of pauses as he recognizes the effects of his words on his people. And he speaks to them very gently and very closely. So as we engage this too, I wanna pray for us that we would have the ability to see even beyond the ways that we've encountered this text before and consider how Jesus is using his words for his people in this moment so that we might be met in it as well. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for knowing our needs and for drawing us rightly into your presence in a way that far from frightening us off actually settles us 
and even then secures us in your love and your character. God, we need this because we are a people of anxiety. Because our fear is so much louder than our faith. And because in our place and dependence before you, we don't yet have developed the eyes to see you clearly. And so, Lord, thank you for speaking your mercy to us. Thank you for grounding us in your love, and I pray that this morning you would continue to do that so that we might understand your approach to us, we might be met by your love, and that our hearts might then be awakened to answer your love with a love of our own, securely rooted and grounded in who you are. And it's in your name, Lord Jesus, that we pray all of these things, even as you have reminded us of them through your word. Amen. So just as a little bit of context of where we are again in the Sermon on the Mount, um, I think it's just important to remember that this is a, a sermon given by a brown-skinned Middle Easterner about 2,000 years ago. Um, he was a guy who was probably about eight years younger than I am, and he's speaking to a whole crowd of the people of Israel. Uh, this is important to remember because the crowd that was before him wasn't just everybody. There's not too many outsiders involved in this. This is kind of a sermon to the insiders. This is a sermon to the people of God of the day. This is a sermon to the church. So these are the people who already know so much. And this is a, a message to a people who have a strong foundation in God's word already. And he begins by identifying the character that is blessed by God, centering um, with the Beatitudes on those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And this is important because the Beatitudes don't describe just everybody. But even in his beginning, he's starting to kind of narrow down on and winnow out exactly who is living a life that is pleasing to God, that is according to God's designs. So already from the get-go, this has a bit of divisiveness within it. He then moves on to issue the call of what it means to be a follower of God, bringing savor and light to all of life, that the right living out of relationship with God is one that that is seasoning to the whole world. So again, this kind of draws out a bit of tension because if you're not building up glory, love, joy, um, depth, understanding, the ability to draw alongside those who are struggling, those who are suffering, if you're not preserving so much of life, if you're not shining light into the dark spaces, well then, you're doing it wrong. And again, there's even challenge that is implicit in these words of Jesus. But he's saying this is not like a compromise of the law of God, saying that all that we need to do is offer comfort and joy. But he actually says this is the fulfillment of the law. This is a heightening of it. And he tells his people in verses, verse 520 um, that unless your righteousness exceeds even the scribes and the Pharisees, those who would have been kind of the best of the best, the elders and deacons and pastors of the day, then you don't have enough. And again, I want you to catch kind of the divisiveness in this because he's saying it has to be more than those people. And so even those people then are suddenly left on the outs. 
And this would be a challenge for those who are listening because then they suddenly feel alienated as well. And I think it's important to identify again here just the three uses of the law that we have. On the one hand, Jesus' sermon here calls us to lift up our eyes to all of the glory for which we are designed as his people, as human beings. And we are to be awed and wowed at all of what life could be. This should spark our imaginations and make us run with joy to imagine what it would be like if centered, if the ones most celebrated, if the standard to which we all set our eyes are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, are the poor. What if, what if we all did live by, by centering the walk of God before anything else? What if the key standard was the ways which we, we added savor and light to all of everything? Culture, family, business, the market. And we should be wowed at where that would bring us. But then we also have the second use of the law, which is to rightfully, once our imaginations are drawn so high, to then be humbled before that standard because our hearts immediately recognize, I don't meet that. I cannot stand on my own contributions. Perhaps one of the most startling and yet most real, um, vital realizations in a walk with God, the recognition that I am not enough. And then comes the third use of the law, which is to bring us back before our creator and put us in a position that transitions from despair into dependence so that we can say, God, you have made us for so much but oh, heavenly Father, I do not meet that standard. And so please, Lord, have mercy on me. Be gracious to me because the only way that I can come into your presence is by your provision. And the Father's provision is what our text this morning speaks to. Um, Jesus continues to roll on, um, describing the ways that what God desires from us is not the outside performance but rather is the inside attitude of our heart in our giving, in our praying, in our fasting. And then last week we had these rightfully orienting words of being instructed to lay up our treasures in heaven and not on earth. And that's not just a make sure you're tithing kind of thing, though that is of course certainly important. But it's a align your heart to the mission of God and let that be the very first thing which guides you, that guides you even more, as we'll see in our text this morning, than whether you're gonna have enough food, or whether you've got enough clothing, or whether you're gonna be able to even provide water for your family, which is a strange concept to us, but very familiar broadly around the world, and especially to these people. And you see, this is exhausting. Our thoughts are the same as theirs in this. How am I going to provide for my family if I do this? How am I even going to provide for myself if I do these things and if I live this way? And anticipating this, and even more than that, 
compassionately anticipating the needs of his people, Jesus pauses to reassure. And he speaks these challenging but also beautifully comforting words. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. You see, I think we have the same problem. We think that our faith will not be enough to provide for our needs. And and let me say this differently. Um, I have this problem. I think that my faith will not be enough to provide for all of my needs. And so I can then immediately lean on, well, who's happy with me? How do my bosses think about me? How have I performed recently in the spheres where I'm being evaluated? I've got to anchor my security. I've got to provide for all the needs of those who are looking up for me. I have to stand as the linchpin between, between all the resources out there and what comes on the food or what comes on the table for food for myself and for my family. And Jesus kindly acknowledges this. And in our text, he reminds us that we can settle, we can even rest, because God's response to our problem is that he is the provider of all good things, and that he is our ultimate source, and this is actually exactly who Jesus is. Jesus is standing present with the people, not just as another dude, but as God himself come to be within the presence of his people, the dwelling place of God shall be with his people. And then he speaks to them, even these words saying, do not be anxious, not as a rebuke, but as an affirmation. We are anxious, of course we are. And he's saying, but you don't have to be because I am here. Because God's love is here. Because God's presence provides. And so our call from this is to rest as children of the Father or, as our text says it, to seek first the kingdom of God, to recognize God's reign, and then to live rightly within it is to orient our hearts to God's kingdom, to our position as his sons and daughters, and then to rightfully rest in his care. Now, before we get into some of what that means, and we will, I just want to pause because, again, I think it's worth stating. These words, do not be anxious about anything, these are not a rebuke of anxiety to say, if you're being anxious, stop it. That doesn't work for the one thing. But on the other thing, that's not what we actually need. You don't say, stop doing something to people who aren't doing it, right? It would be strange for me to stand before you and say, stop bringing fire hoses into the sanctuary. None of you are doing that. I mean, you only rebuke the things that actually need to be addressed. And again, I've just said it there, but it's not a rebuke. You only address the things that need to be addressed. You only comfort in the areas that need to be comforted. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's actually saying, of course you're anxious. It's not a rebuke, it's an invitation. 
but come to me and let's settle your anxieties. Come to me and I will point you to the right source of security, to the right source of comfort, to the right source of love. Um, I also want to address another thing here. Um, what about clinical anxiety? This is not to say, once you recognize the love of God, then you should not need to see a counselor anymore. Then you should no longer need to be on any medications. That's not what this is speaking about. This is speaking about the general anxieties of life and what it means just to be a human being. Now these things also hold true for those of us who do struggle with broader anxieties and with deeper anxieties and even with chemical imbalances in our mind and our hearts and our bodies. And this gives us a foundation, but it's from this foundation that we're also then able to pursue all the other ways that God has provided for us. With people skilled at walking us through the different challenges in life that we've experienced. With the medicines that are derived from his creation that he has provided for us and all of what we need. And so please don't hear in this a distraction from or a reorientation or a canceling against the right do um, process of leaning on what God has provided in counselors, in pastors, in friends, in family, in medicines, and in medications. Those are all right and helpful before God. Um, what I do want to speak about this morning, and where I believe Jesus leads us in this passage this morning, is into the why we can rest as children of the Father. Why we can seek first the kingdom of God. And so if we look at the text, the first place that Jesus leads us um, is actually in that very first verse. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? And he begins just by this very common grace reminder and more than reminder, but anchor to point us towards the fact that life is made for beauty. Life is made for joy. Life is made for more than anxiety and struggling and wondering. Um, Psalm 19 verses one through six draws this out incredibly for us. Another well-worn passage of scripture where we are told, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals his knowledge. There is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun which comes out like a bridegroom leaving its chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the ends of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them and there is nothing hidden from them drawing us just to look at the world around us and see the goodness with which it is created. Um, Ecclesiastes 4, 11 through 13 talks about how he has given us times and seasons and all such things and yet also at the same time he has put eternity on the hearts of man and if I could find it for you right now I would read it. Hang on, here it is. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. It is perceived that nothing is better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. 
and also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Even just at the basic level, there is a recognition inside the church, outside of the church, that life is made for beauty and for good. And Jesus isn't afraid to stand there and say, look at it, recognize it, and even humble yourself before it. The call to us in this, one of the reasons that we can trust the richness of life as we consider the anxieties that we experience is because he's saying, pay attention. Watch to see God's character and glory on display. Just this morning as I was doing my final prep, I was sitting at my kitchen table and one of my my children woke up early, uh, my three-year-old Mara, and she sat down and we've got a vase just full of fresh flowers on the table and she was just ooing and aahing over the, the yellow daisies. And she's just recognizing there is beauty here. And so recognize the beauty. But then also, as we learn to say wow all over again, practice connecting that wow back to praise because if we just look at the painting but we never acknowledge the artist, then we've missed it. And as we look at creation and the beauty around us, and as we consider even the depths of the riches that we've experienced within our own lives, don't be so short-sighted as to miss the connection that this comes straight from the Father. This is God's handiwork. This is what God creates, and his beauty is real, and it is deep, and it is worth trusting. Rest as a child of the king. Seek first the kingdom of God. Secondly, where we're drawn in this um, is to trust the depths of the character of the Father's love. Look with me at chapter 6, verses 26 through 32. A longer section, but he says, Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. (laughs) The birds don't serve a means to the end of God. God does not need the birds. And yet he feeds them and he cares for them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. God's goodness runs so deeply. I want you to consider for a moment, even just from the very beginnings of the book of Genesis, when Adam and Eve rebel against God and they throw his whole plan of creation completely off course and they shatter his design that he had put in place and even the image that he had set within them. What does God do? Well, he continues to care for them. They realize that they are unclothed and he provides clothes. They realize that they're on their own, and so he equips them and sends them out, not abandoned. He recognizes that by themselves, death comes, but he actually gives them many, many more years. What he does not do is just scrap the whole thing and start all the way over. 
what he does not do is just burn it all the way down and begin again. But instead, he enters into a covenant with them. And he gives them this hope that one day, one day, all things that are broken will be burned up and undone and all things that he redeems will be made new again. That the cause of all of the brokenness will be crushed under the heel of the people that have gone astray. And that one day, all things will be made glorious once more. God is a God of patience. He is a God of entering in. Um, talking with Cheryl Mullis, our director of women's ministry in our small groups, reminded me of a quote from Nancy Guthrie that said that the best part about the kingdom is the king. Um, C.S. Lewis, talking on this idea in his book, The Problem of Pain, talks about the intolerable compliment. He says, the love that made the worlds, persistent as the artist's love for his work and despotic as a man's love for a dog, provident and venerable as a father's love for a child, jealous, inexorable, exacting as a love between the sexes is placed upon you and me. How this should be, I do not know. It passes reason to explain why any creature, not to say creatures such as we, should have a value so prodigious in their creator's eyes. And yet, we do. God's character and provision for us, even in provision of Jesus Christ himself, runs so deeply that our value before him is magnified so incredibly. And yet, and yet I want to pause even here because the full attention of authority and power in this life, even the full love of authority and power in this life, has often proven unsafe for us. We've experienced this in the bullying in school or in neighborhoods or even just amongst siblings. Uh, emotional abuse that we've experienced from mothers and fathers and family members even the physical and sexual violence that is perpetrated against those who are not in power by those who are in power over them. And it can be terrifying to stand in this love. That's why, as I just mentioned, C.S. Lewis described this as the intolerable compliment. It's a, a strange, almost disproportionate, except that the author of all proportion has set it on us, love. Um, this past Thursday was my birthday. I turned 38. Pretty excited about it. Thank you. Um, I hate it when people sing happy birthday to me. <laughs> Some of you may experience this as well. That doesn't mean everybody has to. This is just my weird quirk. Um, no other area in life does anybody sing at you. You might join others in singing as we have done, but no other moment do people ask you, hey, stand up front, stay still, we're all gonna look at you, and now we're all gonna sing at you. I don't like that level of attention. It makes me feel on the spot, and it makes me feel like I just have to endure it. I love you. If you sing happy birthday to me, it's okay. Um, but what I want you to see, like, that's the same kind of love that God has for us. It feels disproportionate. It can even feel unsafe. Accept that. Accept that. And don't miss this. 
It is God who is giving this love to us. It is not your friends. It is not your family. It is not your bosses. It is not any of those people who prove unsafe, even in the best of characters. But it is the creator God from Genesis 1 and 2. It is the same way that God describes himself even to his people, even after they have rebelled against him in some of the most treacherous ways. In the book of Exodus, when the people have just made it out of Egypt being led by God, their father, and then they come to the mount with the Ten Commandments and then they screw it all up by making their own God while they're impatient for Moses up on the mountain that they can see smoking and burning with fire in God's presence. And God offers this description of himself to them. It says, So Moses cut the tablet of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went to Mount Sinai as the Lord commanded him and took in his hand the two stones. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love to thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. This is the Lord. This is our Heavenly Father. This is what equips us to begin to set aside our anxieties when we stand before him. Finally, from the very beginning, this verse again, uh, chapter 26, the very middle of it, Jesus pauses after offering the illustrations of other things. He says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they. We have this temptation to think that we are not of more value than they, that we are but the rubbish before God, the ones who screwed it all up and have no value. And yes, we have committed atrocity against the Lord. We have broken his image within us. Brothers and sisters, you are not rubbish you are not throwaway. None of this world is. Even those that we would wish were rubbish and were throwaway, they are not. They are sons and daughters of the king made in his image with dignity, value, and glory. And the very fact that Jesus is here reminding us, don't be anxious. Why? Well, because life is made for beauty because you are made in the image of the Father and he loves you and his character is good and because you are worth so much more than anything else, than even the flowers that stop the three-year-olds in their paths to say, wow, you are made for glory. And you are made by a Father who loves you. This is borne out through so much of Scripture, even back in Genesis 1. If you look even just at the flow of the text, there's this block narrative of God made this, and it was good, and then he made this, and it was good, and on the other day he made this, and it was good, and then it says, and then he made man, and he breaks into poetry. Even the lines on the page change. It's no longer just the regular words. It's song, because God breaks out in song over us. Hebrews Um, 12, chapter 2, talks about, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and follow as Christ, 
the author of our salvation, who for the joy that was set before him spurned even the cross. And what was that joy that was set before him? Well, brothers and sisters, it's you. It's you that made it worth surviving in this life, that made it worth enduring all of the abuses, physical, emotional, even sexual, that Jesus endured being exposed on the cross in nakedness. It's you. You were the joy that was set before him. You were the joy that made him say, yes, this is worth it, and I am getting an awesome deal. In Ephesians 2, he says, because of the great love with which he loved us. Then in verse 10, it follows up saying that we are his workmanship, or in the Greek, the word is poema, his poetry, his craftsmanship, his artistry. Zephaniah 3, 17 says, he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. Do not be anxious. He will exult over you with loud singing. Zechariah 9, 16 describes us as jewels in a crown. Why should you not be anxious? Why can you trust this? Why can you risk putting faith above all else? Because God made you for beauty. Because our heavenly Father is trustworthy and kind and gentle and he provides all of what we need even when what we need is righteousness. He provides Jesus Christ, the one who issues these words to us and because you are so much more valuable than even the most glorious flower and the most awe-inspiring bird. Sandra McCracken says in a song to children, you don't have feathers or wings, but there's good news. You are worth so much more to the God who has made everything. Our problem is that we tend to think that our faith, our trusting, our following, our seeking first, the kingdom, will not be enough to provide for us. But even in that moment, even in this moment on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, but wait, I know you're anxious, but come rest in our Heavenly Father who provides all things. And so our call in this is to actually do that, to actually rest in Him as King. And this morning as we come to the table, that's the practice that we are doing we will come and we will take the body and the blood of Christ and we will confess we are not enough and so we need someone else to fill us. And once again, let me remind you, this is what God has provided. This is, this is the very way that we are able to come back to him because Jesus Christ himself who spoke these words so many years ago didn't just speak them, he then lived them by embodying the love of God for us so deeply that he laid down his life so that we might then live. This is the glory of the gospel and the glory of God's love for us and the glory of what it means to be children of him, to be members of the kingdom of heaven. At the same time, there's also a boundary on this because if you are not trusting Jesus for this salvation, well then you are still yet separated from the Father. 
And so rather than coming to the table and taking of the bread and of the wine or the juice, I'd encourage you to wait in your seats and take instead of Jesus Christ, the one who knows you are anxious, who knows that you cannot provide all of these things for yourself, and who has said, I will be that provision for you. The one whom God, our creator, has said, I know you have shattered my image. I know you have experienced great hardship in this life, but let me provide for your needs. I am providing for you, Jesus. And so if you have not yet taken of Jesus, it would not be right to come to this table. Take instead of him right now. Confess your anxiety, your despair, your desperation, and come meet the Father who provides our way back home. Um, in just a moment, um, I'm going to pray for us, and then the elders will come forward and lift the cloth and open the elements, and then one elder will um, dismiss row by row, inviting you to come forward and partake of the supper. And as we do that, please evaluate your hearts. Confess your need and the presence of rightful anxiety. And then turn to him to provide all of what you need to give you security and grounding before the love of God, our Father. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you that your goodness covers all of our sin. That even as we consider all the things that we need and even as we stand face to face recognizing our need for your provision because we cannot provide for ourselves, we praise you for your son, Jesus. We praise you that he did not just speak these words but that he lived them. And we praise you that in all things we can come before you as our Father. We can put seeking you to be the very first thing and we can trust that you will provide for all of our needs beyond that. And so it's in your name that we pray these things, Lord Jesus. Amen.